freedom and censorship can't exist in the same world. And that's true whether it's the government or private corporations who do the censoring. Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, and welcome to the Coleman Nation podcast. It's a show where I sit down with guests to discuss the future of free expression and thought in our interconnected world. Here, we will focus on issues involving social media, cancel culture, and free expression that everybody who cares about ideas or freedom should be wrestling with. Hello, culminators. How are you on this great December day? I've given away some of the, given away some of the secrets here that this might not, you might not be listening to this on the great December day, but uh, that's what it is here in metropolitan New York. I'm glad to be speaking to you high atop the Robert Reed Center in beautiful downtown Newark, New Jersey. Today, my guest is Miranda Devine of the New York Post, and more famously, just this recently, the laptop from hell lady. Oh, man, are we going to have fun? It's amazing that we even got a piece of her, even though she's always so nice on Twitter, because she's just so, so hot today. Miranda, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Ron. It's a great honor and pleasure to be with you on Uh, the podcast. Ah, shucks. Now, that picture behind you doesn't look so gray. You, uh, maybe the, the sun came out on your veranda after um, M- Miranda. <laughs> yeah, no, maybe maybe that was taken on a, a, a pl- more pleasant day. It's taken. fine. It's just December. I thought that was really the background. I, I, <laughs> what what other things? My, we've already made a major revelation here. Yeah. You were saying before we went um, onto uh, recording that. Um, you were disappointed that it looked like we're not going to have a white Christmas. Yes, exactly. Your son's coming from uh, his real Australia. home? Yes. He doesn't want to live with you in New York? No, of course not. Which is a good thing. You know, yeah, I, I think so. young men ought to fly the coop. I left home when I was 17. Um, and I think a lot of Gen Z now stays at home with their parents. I would love them to be living with me i i just love having my you know grown-up children pretty much um living with me but i think it's good for them not to i think that they should fend for themselves and learn how to do their own laundry and oh yeah learn when things go wrong and they need to call a plumber or fix something that's very good how old are your kids um early 20s early 20s yes i have some of those as well um I was, when you mentioned that about the snow, it made me think about how I live in the suburbs in, uh, here in New Jersey. It's not really a suburb. It's a small city, the city of Clifton. Yeah. It's really all just one city up in northern New Jersey. And I'm, it's always so sad to me because there are still a few non-Jews in my predominantly Orthodox neighborhoods <laughs> sitting in their houses as they double in value every 10 minutes. Uh, and they always put up these inflatable Santa Clauses. And if you have to have it up for Christmas, of course, I understand that that's part of, of, the, of, of their religion. And, but it's never, it's almost virtually never snowy for Christmas. So Santa looks so sad there on the brown grass, waving his automated <laughs> hand, all blown up. And it's, you know, anyway, you know, these are- what It's worth call- it for those, those rare years. Last year was pretty snowy. Those rare years, it's just the most magical thing in the world. 
it, it is really very nice. And, and, but these are what we call people of power problems. Um, <laughs> Miranda, you are, how long have you been writing for, uh, for the post? Uh, since 2019. So, oh, so you're almost three years. That, you know, for someone who, whose dad used to bring the post home, you know, when I lived in Brooklyn, because it had the best sports section. You know, back <laughs> back in the in the sixties and seventies. I mean, we've seen it go through wow. a lot of a lot of changes, but it's kind of been yeah. it's an, it's been an interesting ride with the uh, for the post, hasn't it? For for a while, there it seemed like they were getting a little squishy, but I think that's been remedied. That's my perception. Yeah, yeah, I I think that's right. And um, you know, that I mean, the post is an institution in New York, but it can't be squishy. No. And it definitely has a point of view. And, you know, it's almost died a couple of times. It's come back. Uh, Rupert Murdoch saved it. Um, he sold it. He bought it again. Um, and so I think the Post is in good hands and good editors and great columnists. <laughs> you might be a little, um, a little uh, biased, perhaps. But, you know, it's like when you said to me that you like to follow me on Twitter and I assured you that you were... Your judgment was excellent in that regard. <laughs> Miranda, you, um, what made you decide to be the one to write the laptop story? I mean, I always think, and this is part of the reason I'm a risk-averse middle-class lawyer, is that I'm always thinking, some, everyone's doing, if, that, if it were so easy, if, that, if you could make a living, if you could sell a book, about the laptop from hell, which seems like such an obvious subject, then everyone, then everyone would be doing it or, or everyone's already done it. What, what makes me think I can do it when it's like such a hot topic? What made you decide that you should be the one to throw yourself into this? Well, I mean, basically the, the day that Twitter and Facebook decided that they were going to censor uh, the New York Post for publishing a couple of emails from the laptop um, really was the moment that I realised that this is a story that people in power really don't want to get out. And the more I looked into the laptop, the more, uh, you know, nefarious dealings I found by Joe Biden and his family. And you know, I think a book is the best way of explaining it. And, you know, the laptop itself is not enough. I mean, after a while, there were a few people, the laptop started filtering out or bits and pieces were posted online, but also fake uh, pictures and bits and pieces were also put online. I don't know, deliberately to muddy the waters and discredit the laptop, um, but it's not enough on its own. And I also had... Um, access to Tony Bobulinski and his trove of um, documents and emails and, I mean, effectively the contents of his devices that he handed over to the FBI last year uh, in October, just after we published the first um, of our stories from the laptop. So that's the two pieces of the jigsaw puzzle that you really need to understand the entire influence peddling scheme that Joe Biden has been running really since his very earliest days in Delaware four decades ago as a senator, um, but which he internationalized uh, and 
monetized in, in a much greater uh, extent to a much greater extent when he became vice president. Um, and then there's another piece of the jigsaw puzzle, which was provided by um, the Republican senators, Chuck Grasley and Ron Johnson, who did a really excellent uh, investigation into parts of Hunter Biden's overseas business dealings, particularly with Ukraine, and they had access to documents um, that sort of buttressed and augmented the some of the documents and invoices and so on I had, but, you know, were proof of money, tens of millions of dollars really coming into bank accounts associated with Hunter Biden and his business partners. So all of those put together, it's a pretty ironclad story. And not many people had access to, you know, all pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. And um, I, I just thought it was a story that had to be told. And, you know, it's a mess, the laptop. I mean, it's not an easy thing to, to ferret through, as should be obvious to everyone since it's sort of been around um, or parts of it have been around and no one's really been able to coherently put it together as a narrative. And I think that's why a book is good, because you need to put in context why a certain deal is important, why it threatens America's national interest, um, you know, why this person meeting Joe Biden was so significant and why Joe Biden lying to the American people before the election campaign and saying he knew nothing about Hunter Biden's business dealings is so provably wrong and so damaging to the country. So there's there's you've just given us the whole map for the rest of the of the podcast, which is makes my my job immensely easier. First, <laughs> right off the bat, you talked about censorship, which is the putative theme of the of the podcast. I'm still insulted because people I invite on say, "Oh, what's your podcast about, dude? I'm Ron Coleman. Why does it? Ha it's about whatever the it's the, you ask Tucker what his show is about. Come on." But uh, no, they want to know what it's about. So I have to always hit that. But but the thing, the amazing thing about the thing about the post, actually, I'm glad I actually seized on that early on. Uh, it occupies a very odd space because almost every one of my guests at some point or another talks about the end of independent journalism and how all the traditional journalistic outlets have become so, they're just, you know, they're brands, they're empty brands, they're skating on their brand equity, they've been monetized in a way that reflects the new reality of the internet and all those, all the things that everybody knows very well. But the New York Post, having been founded by Alexander Hamilton, being a very, very, very legacy um, outfit is not, nonetheless went against the grain and suffered the vengeance of the new media masters and survived. That's extraordinary to me. So yes, this is really your, I mean, your answer reminds me that really, if anyone was going to write it, it was going to have to be someone from the New York Post. That's so, right. I mean, it's the New York Post yeah. story. We broke it uh, before the election. And, and we know, you know, my colleague Emma Jo Morris did a brilliant job um, with those first stories. And we know that if the American people had uh, been aware, or if Biden voters at least um, had been aware of what was on the laptop, um, things might have been quite different. We know no, from polls no, after the election. No, no, <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. I mean, that's, I mean, I, I don't think, 
I don't think anything would have changed those votes because I'm not even talking about voter fraud. People, you know, there were people who would vote for Trump, even if all the Russia stuff were true, a lot of them. And there were people who were going to vote for, facts don't matter. I mean, the facts about what a mediocrity. But there were a lot of people in the middle. There were people in the middle. You really think so? Who I think believed that Joe Biden was a moderate, would be a unifying president, was, you know, a, a man, a kindly man touched by tragedy. A good Uncle guy. Joe, at least, at least a, a good, good guy. guy. The poorest man in Congress, honest as the day is long. Um, you know, it, he is the opposite of all those things. Plus, he's a racist, which I don't even go into. But, but he is not honest. Uh, he is um, not a unifier. He is quite an angry, vengeful person who has, or in his past, had a great charisma um, you know, a fake charisma, but a great charisma. And uh, that sort of skated him through. And plus he had this Teflon coating of tragedy, real tragedy that afflicted his family very early when he lost his wife and his baby daughter in a car crash and Hunter and his older brother, Bo were quite badly injured. And Joe Biden made sure to get this iconic photo taken of his being sworn in for the first time as a Senator at the age of um, 29.30 by the time he got there, um, by their hospital bed. And that photograph he has used in every candidate, in every campaign since. And it's just this image of these two little broken boys, you know, motherless boys lying on a hospital bed while daddy's taking the oath of office. And um, that has given him protection. I, I doubt very much whether he would have made it to the White House. Without, you really do. You um, really do. I, I, I mean, listen. You're you're, you're entitled to 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 to, a, to to your view on that. I just, I mean, I do think that the election fraud itself would be reason enough not to have have um, not for that not to be the case. But I I also think that. But he never have, would have been as successful he, as he he was as a senator, because he he got so much sympathy and no one queried the. You mean the, if it had come out earlier, you know, was, years ago? Years ago, I mean, the corruption that ha- has always surrounded him, there's been evidence, you know, right. even the New York Times has published some of it. Um, some of his opponents in for Senate races in Delaware have sort of weakly come out with it. Um, you know, it's not been exactly a, a, a mystery or a secret, but anybody who dares query him about the fact that his family is cashing in big time on his power and influence, and he was very powerful as a senator, um, is is just met with this great, um, you know, hurt Moral expression. Outrage, right. and, yeah. and they feel guilty. I mean, there's, you know, people have talked, who have worked for him about feeling guilty about raising anything about Hunter or Uncle Jim or anybody else in the family getting rich uh, by compromising his office. So does the um, laptop end he, up being the Rosetta Stone? In other words, there were always there was always this stuff out there, but it, the laptop corroborates it all and brings yeah. it all together. Is that accurate? Absolutely. And interestingly, you can speculate, I certainly do, that the fact that Hunter Biden, uh, he's lost from my count three laptops because um, he was a crackhead for many of the nine years that the laptop covers, uh, and that's what addicts do. But he dropped off this particular laptop 
at the MacBook repair shop, just a few hundred meters from his home in Delaware, just um, a few days before Joe Biden announced that he was running for president. Now, you know, he, he loves his father, he hero worships his father, but he's also extremely resentful and ambivalent about his father. And so at that particular time, he was really angry with his father and his entire family. And uh, he ended up going off to, to California and, and living there. And he'd, he'd, he'd often go off to California and have, you know, month long benders at the Chateau Marmont, but he was raging against his father throughout that whole period. So something Freudian, maybe it was unconscious, but he knew that what was on that laptop was destructive to his father, potentially to his great ambition, his last chance of becoming president. And we know that he knows that because, well, he knows what's on his laptop, but he also told a prostitute in, in a video that's on the laptop when he discussed another laptop that he lost that was stolen by Russian drug dealers. And he expressed concern that what was on the laptop could be damaging to his father. He said, you don't understand. My father is going to be running for president. And these people, the Russian drug dealers, know I'm worth gazillions. So he knew he was leaving himself open to blackmail. But now let's take a step back, okay? Now it's out. Now you've done your superlative book. You've put it all together. You've decoded it. Has it harmed Joe Biden in any way? Does a practical matter? Well, I, I, look, I'm not really looking to harm Joe Biden. No, no, I'm saying now your, that the information no. is out there, not you personally, it's not your job. No, well, but I think what, I think what's important is that Americans get to read it and not just um, readers of the New York Post or viewers of Fox News or, you know, podcast devotees of your your show. Um, but I hope, I hope people not. Who, <laughs> but CNN viewers and MSNBC viewers, maybe that's going a bit too far, but, you know, New York Times readers, Washington Post readers, um, you know, there's silence about that. But I think the book is interesting enough as a narrative um you know it has everything it has oligarchs at lake como and um, monte carlo um i mean this is just the laptop this is just hunter's life uh you know swish parties in shanghai and uh 50 million dollar penthouses in manhattan um his partners who go missing get murdered um you know and and our hero our anti-hero Hunter Biden just emerges unscathed through all of this. He was right at the centre of some of the biggest geopolitical forces on the planet today. Uh, he was in the middle of a massive energy deal between Russia and China. Um, it, it, the, the story itself is compelling. It so I is. think that just out of curiosity, uh, <laughs> I know that independent bookstore, I mean, the book ran out day one. I mean, that's a problem. But it will be in stock. It is slowly getting into stock. Amazon's got a big stock now. It's been reprinted. Um, and by January, there'll be more available. But I think that, you know, we're hearing from independent bookstores, left-wing liberal bookstores that my really? publisher says has never, uh, have never asked for conservative books before. Really? I tried to write it not as a conservative book, 
but as a straightforward piece of reportage. I'm a former police reporter. So I just managed to buttress everything I wrote. The entire narrative is backed up by provable evidence from the laptop, backed up by Tony Bobolinsky, and backed up where I could by, um, you know, documents from the Treasury and other documents. So, uh, you know, and there was other stuff I also had access to um, from uh, Matthew Tymond and Peter Schweitzer had access to another of Hunter Biden's business partners who's in jail, one of the many who's in jail, Bevan Cooney, is, is uh, annoyed about having been pinged for a deal and, and Hunter and his other partner, Devin Archer, aren't in jail. Devin Archer's been convicted, but not in jail yet. He's sitting around waiting for, I think, some appeal to happen with the Supreme Court. But Bevan Cooney was angry, contacted Matthew Tymon and Peter Schweitzer and has given them the contents of his um, material. So, so that also overlaps. So all of these little pinpoints of light um, add together to be a reported book. It's not, it's not a polemic. And, and that's, I think, makes it more powerful and more um, useful. I mean, people can read it with them as much cynicism as they like, but I think by the end of it, they will have a more realistic view of who Joe Biden is and who he has always been. And I think when they put that together with the president they've seen over the last 11 months, who is so different from the image that they were sold, uh, that's why you see in the polls this great disillusionment, uh, especially among independents. I mean, the latest you know, there's a Myris poll that came out uh, that's, that showed that independents, only 29% approve of the job that Biden is doing. That's unprecedented. That is historic. And that's because the mythology that Joe Biden created around himself and then was helped to perpetrate by the media, um, it was so powerful and fooled so many people. That's what he's good at lying and fooling people but once you see behind the facade once you realize that he really is there's some psychological ailment he's lying and his tall tales it's not normal once you realize that you just cannot unsee it and therefore everything falls into place and i think that's where this book is useful it is kind of a psychological thing obviously because going back to 30, 40 years ago, he, he mm. told lies that were so readily, they, they were objective claims that could readily be disproved by just making a couple of phone calls back when reporters did more than read Twitter. And yeah. it was, you know, I, you know, misstating where he stood in his class and just plagiarizing really stupid mistakes by a person who's not, you know, you know, we, we're all laughing about what a dumb dummy is. And of course he's managed to, with no accountability whatsoever, make a very nice living for himself and his family. And, you know, you know, it doesn't seem like he's got a very happy Hunter Biden on his, on his hands. And, but I assume you haven't been asked for any, uh, information from law enforcement about this matter? Well, they don't need to. They have all the information. They've had the laptop since December 2019, um, you know, eight months after John Paul MacIsaac, the Delaware repair shop owner, um, came into ownership of it after Hunter Biden abandoned it and didn't pay his bill, his $85 bill. 
um, he handed it over to the FBI because he's a law abiding guy. And then six months later, when he could see what was happening with the impeachment and he knew that the, the contents of the laptop, because he'd had to watch for hours as it was uploaded onto his server, this water damaged laptop, uh, he uploaded the contents. Um, he knew about Burisma and, and the Ukrainians, and he was really worried. That was one of the reasons he called the FBI. He was worried about his own safety because he felt he was in possession of some really red hot information with international implications that was being used to impeach President Trump. He, he was a voter of President Trump, which isn't a crime last time I looked, or maybe it soon will be. Um, he, he, he tried to get this information into the hands of various Republican members of Congress like Jim Jordan. <clears throat> he tried to contact them, got no response. And finally, he saw Rudy Giuliani talking on Fox News about Ukraine and his client, President Trump. And he thought, well, I'll try Rudy Giuliani, sent an email to an address he found online. It was intercepted by um, Bob Costello, who's Rudy Giuliani's lawyer and a great forensic mind who used to be, uh, you know, a prosecutor, used to be at the Southern District of New York. Used to and be he, my partner. Well, I didn't realize that. Is that right? Well, you know what a, what a steel trap of a mind he has. And he looked at the very detailed email, very rational email from John Paul MacIsaac, the laptop repair guy, and thought, well, there may be something in this and got him to FedEx him the, the you know, the, the thumb drive, the, the hard drive with the contents of the laptop that he'd copied and um, took, took a look at it with Rudy and realized that this was real and a kind of a bombshell. And so uh, they did their due diligence for several weeks and then, you know, we had it at the New York Post and we did our due diligence. Um, and now a year later, nothing you know, none of the material on that has been disputed. Um, and, and in fact, if anything, you know, I, I published a story in the summer um, that, that went into much greater detail uh, because, you know, I, going through the laptop takes a long time. I found that it wasn't just a meeting that Joe Biden as vice president had had with one of Hunter Biden's business partners, it was a dinner at Cafe Milano, which is an Italian restaurant in Georgetown in 2015 that the then vice president attended, where he met Hunter's business associates from Ukraine, but also Russia and Kazakhstan. And the White House basically admitted that to the Washington Post when the Washington Post tried to fact check my story uh, and actually ended up proving it correct. Um, but the White House admitted that. And even though they'd lied, his, the Biden campaign had told the Washington Post and USA Today and other reporters, for all I know, before the election, that it was garbage, that our story was garbage and that Joe Biden had never met um, with this person. The, the, what the campaign was saying to other people was, well, there's nothing on Joe Biden's official diary for right. that date in April 2015, <laughs> but maybe he just met in passing someone at, you know, he goes to a lot of functions, but he actually went to Cafe Milano, to the private room, to the garden room, and he met with these people. How stupid so, do you have to be to, to, to reprint an excuse like that? It's like he didn't put on his diary 
extortion meeting <laughs> with foreign officials in violation of various federal statutes and for purposes of political advantage and bribery. I mean, unbelievable. And they, and, and with, and they just print it. They just print it. So they're let me ask gullible you. when it comes no, to do you things think, they want to believe. Do you think they're gullible? That's a very generous. No, no willfully gullible. <laughs> right. you know, so they're not really gullible. So that raises my next question. I mean, you know, you mentioned how the, the reality of who Joe Biden is, although there don't seem to have any to been any direct consequences to the information on the laptop having been examined and analyzed by people such as yourself. Um, I'm sure the FBI has put its very best people on it. Top men, top men. Um, so you mentioned politically, on the other hand, people see what a, an unappealing and incompetent person Joe Biden is. Do you think the media has also suffered along with that by virtue of, as you, as you said, they were the ones selling this image of him, this false, this, this obviously false image? Do you think they've taken a hit along with Joe? Well, yes, but I mean, it's just one of many hits, you know, from Jussie Smollett to Carl Rittenhouse to Russia collusion hoax, you name it. Um, the media, particularly this year, a lot of chickens have come home to roost and you, you can see in the complete contempt that most Americans have for all media um, that uh, they have no credibility anymore and they really talk. You also see from their viewership and their readership. The Washington Post has just is hemorrhaging readers. <clears throat> CNN is hemorrhaging viewers. Um, they were living off, first of all, Donald Trump and hatred of Donald Trump and whipping that up, Trump derangement syndrome. And then for a, a little while, they were, um, you know, trying to live off this sort of false uh, framing of America as white supremacist and conservatives as domestic terrorists and so on. Um, but I, I think, I hope that Americans are starting to wisen up and a lot more red pills have been dispensed in the community because um, the, 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 all the narratives are collapsing along with the economy and the country and Joe Biden's polls and the popularity of the media. And um, they're, they're really like, it's like the emperor's new clothes. Right? Their fig leaf has gone to mix some marital metaphors. And um, I don't really know where they go from this. I think it's very difficult to try and resuscitate your reputation once it's gone, when you are the New York Times or the Washington Post, um, these grand institutions um, who we revered. I mean, as journalists, these were great mastheads that had conducted great, well, in retrospect, maybe they hadn't conducted such great journalism, but certainly when I was at journalism school, they were the gold standard, you know, Watergate, um, the New York Times, and the Pentagon they're papers. not anymore. The Pentagon Papers, yeah. They're, they're not that anymore, and they just seem to exist to perpetrate lies, that meta-narrative, um, really, that that is all about um, saying that America is an irredeemable, evil, corrupt nation. And um, I, I, I don't think most Americans want 
that to be true and they're patriotic and they are starting to realise that these media institutions are out to really hurt America and destroy America. So given what the Post experienced in connection with the laptop story, the Times, and given, for, for example, the way, you know, newspapers like the Times and the Post, hard, the Washington Post, you might have expected it in another time or when you were in journalism school that if the Post had been censored the way you essentially were on Twitter, that they would have stood shoulder to shoulder with you. Instead, they're part of the, they're part of the same system. And it's extraordinary today how much time is spent in the pages of these traditional power elite journalism outlets sniping at Fox and sniping at the Post instead of pretending to tell the news. But do you, do you think it's going to work? I mean... That is what I would fear if I were Miranda and if I were and if I were Breitbart and if I were the New York Post, which is that. Yes, she got her book out this time, but she won't get the next one out. Not that she's going to hurt anyone's going to harm you personally, but that, you know, similar to the way Amazon changed its um, policies for accepting documentaries after Amanda Milius's um, fantastic, um, you know, coup book. Uh, the um, what is it of the president again? I was I just spoke to Lee Smith about it, um, but you know her her, her film ab- about about the oh yeah the plot to the plot the plot, the plot right the plot the against plot the, president. the president the yeah, plot yeah. against the president <laughs> yeah. um, it's so simple we we can't remember that's right because we're <laughs> we're so used to being terribly clever um, but but the post will always be able to print the post let's but being able to print a newspaper is increasingly less important than ever. If they shut down your Twitter feed and kick you off Facebook, who are you talking to? If Amazon decides not to carry your book as they have decided not to carry so many books, what do you think is the way around this? Well, you're absolutely right. <clears throat> it's, um, I mean, the, the frightening part about the, the last year has been that, we have seen that these, you know, big tech oligopolies, unaccountable to anybody, global businesses, have been quite prepared to use their power to um, affect political ends. And so they, they censored us. They censored a damaging story to the president before the election. And they deplatformed the sitting president of the United States. And nothing has changed since then, except that Jack Dorsey, the head of Twitter, has decided he's had enough and he's leaving. And in his place, someone even more radical uh, is is now sitting there rubbing his hands with glee. So I just think the only solution is for the Republicans to do what they should have done for the four years of the Trump administration and just didn't have the cojones to do a lot of them are 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 compromised by big tech uh um you know in bed with big tech um but they need to break them up and there was talk of it at the end of the trump administration um we can't expect 
the Biden administration to do it, even though the, the left of the Democrats, people like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders talk about it. Um, there's just no appetite. And of course, Joe Biden hired a whole bunch of Facebook execs day one of his administration. So um, if, you know, the Republicans do manage to take back the House and the Senate in the midterms and, and maybe even get the White House in 2024, um, then they need to wade in and break up these gigantic oligopolies, don't you think? I mean, yes, it's happened before with the, the railways. This is much more damaging. These people control our, our most important pipes of communication and yes. they can shut us down at a moment's notice. It is terrifying. Even Emmanuel Macron in France commented on this. It's not just an American problem. It's all over the world. Well, you you know, and it's interesting because these national governments and in, in themselves and the European Union has demonstrated far more spine, which is not to say much spine, but more spine than American regulatory authorities. And when I say regulatory, obviously the First Amendment is an issue when regulating newspapers, but it has they have been regulated many times and they have been exempted from regulation many times by legislation. Those are policy choices. Every industry is regulated. And when an industry is anti-competitive, uh, the fact that it might, by succeeding, be, be able to guarantee its own dominance doesn't necessarily lead to, a cons to cons maximum consumer welfare, even in the First Amendment sphere. So yes, I, I've got a lot to say about that topic. Um, it is- I mean, yeah. Google and Facebook, well, Google in particular uh, and Facebook have, they've gutted the revenue source of traditional media. I mean, they, they took all our advertising revenue and, um, and gutted newsrooms. That's one of the reasons that there's no investigative reporting um, you know, nobody except maybe the New York Times or, or Jeff Bezos's Washington Post has reporters out there that are able to do that. It takes a lot of time. It's expensive. You need a lot of shoe leather and time. So um, that's the first thing they did. And they're acting as publishers without any of the, you know, accountability measures that we have as as. Uh, mainstream traditional publishers like, you know, libel law or contempt or any of those issues, they just skate free. So they are not, they, they, have, they have prospered enormously on a really uneven playing field. It's maybe it was the Wild West. They don't, they, they are not a private companies that are doing private things. They have monopolized the public space, the public square. And they've done it for free and they've done it by ripping us off and denuding the American public of real uh, diverse sources of information. Do you have you found, though, any throttling of publicity or uh, advertising or commentary or promotion of your book from any oh, of the Of course. Yeah. What's an example? Of, of course. Well, I mean, the fact that The New York Times, The Washington Post and the sort of liberal media have not mentioned it. I mean, there's just been no mention. Um, and 
And look, I'm not going to get into conspiracy theories. The book did run out, but it is taking a long time. And there is a supply chain problem, but it certainly is taking a long time for people to get their books delivered to them by Amazon. Um, and certainly we've missed the Christmas rush. I don't know whether that's by design or just, you know, a simple supply chain problem. Um, who knows? Well, I guess we'll know in January when they will have ample supplies of books and no excuse. Let's hope. The only other thing I would say is that I thought it was really odd that a counterfeit book went up linked to the normal page for my book and it had an almost identical cover. Um, my name was incorrectly spelt, D-E-V-A-N. Uh, inside was just garbage, um, just words strung together. It looked like they'd been Google translated from Mandarin or something. Um, but that book, um, so after the hardcovers ran out, the publisher briefly uh, printed some, or Amazon printed some uh, of those cheap paperbacks that Amazon can do in their factory. Um, and that, that paperback went to number eight. The hardcover was at number one and the counterfeit book went to number nine and it stayed up on Amazon for four days after we had been forced to write a legal letter to Amazon. And it only came down uh, when um, well, there was another legal intervention, which I won't go into. And so I can't believe that Amazon wasn't aware that a, the number eight, the number nine paperback in the country was a, was a fraud. I mean, it was obviously a fraud. You just had to look at how terrible the cover looked. You know, it's the same photograph, but it's pink and it just looks like it's been copied a million times. The name is misspelled. The words are ridiculous. Um, and, but people were sent that. They paid their money. They were posted out the books. They got them. Some of them thought that I had written this nonsense and gave me one-star reviews. But other people were just very disappointed. And even though they got their money back from Amazon, it meant that they missed out on getting the book. So I don't know whether that's, um, you know, just Amazon just doesn't run itself very well. Maybe these kinds of things happen, but I haven't heard of it happening. I know counterfeit books happen, but not to this extent where they become so popular, where so many are sold, and then there's such an obvious counterfeit. Are you hopeful? Do you think we can th that we can get past all this nonsense and that and that the, the ultimately the we the truth will come out and the truth will be able to remain available to people? I I am um, I I am. There are a lot of books um, will be printed by by January. There's a lot of demand. We know that. And as I said, the independent bookstores are calling up, and that's unheard of. Um, so. I think that there will be enough books out there and people will start talking about it. Uh, and I think it will shift perceptions and at least make people um, open their eyes to the idea that, that Joe Biden has uh, run a corrupt enterprise uh, all of his, his political life and uh, that it really became damaging to America's national interests and national security when he became vice president and now president. And so at least I think um, people's eyes will be a little bit more wide open. Do you feel any uh, sense of intimidation or 
I don't want to say fear because I can't imagine you feel fear, but do you feel any pressure from the people who are most apt to be pleased that your book has been counterfeited and that they ran out of them and all the, you know, who would, who would like your book as little as possible to be said about your book. Do you think people are out? Anyone oh, wants sure. to harm you? Yeah. Oh, I mean, you, you know, you don't go up against the president of the United States uh, without, um, you know, a slight bit of trepidation. Um, so, but, you know, I, I work for a, um, a very strong company and, uh, you know, run by a very strong owned by a very strong owner so the fact you know the new york post i think is the only organization news organization that would have published what we did last october um and so we are resolute um so you know the truth is the truth and um it's out there and there's nothing they can do about it thank you for sharing the truth with us miranda and for sharing it uh with uh with with listeners to the culmination podcast i know that notwithstanding the fact that the new york times and and cbs and nbc are not calling you for their shows just yet that you've been extremely busy because the book is happening you've done you've done the right thing and uh thanks for sticking with it and again for coming onto the show thanks Brian. it's been a pleasure hey thank you for listening to the coleman nation podcast Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.